Our Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan back in the news in another embarrassing fashion. But in this case, he's been outdone by Attorney General Dave Yost for doing something shameful. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Courtney Astolfi. And I don't think the outrage factor could be much higher than we have with this story. Let's dig right in. So it turns out that despite the skepticism in some quarters, including Dave Yost, our attorney general, a 10-year-old girl was raped and impregnated and forced to go to Indiana for her abortion because of Ohio's heartbeat law. Lisa, set the stage for this. I think everybody's going to want to venture in with some thoughts. Uh, yes, it's it, it really kind of had a lot of dissembling going on after this came out. But 27-year-old Gershon Fuentes was arrested on Tuesday for child rape. He's jailed on a $2 million bond, and he faces life in prison if he's convicted. So what happened was... Um, the Columbus police were alerted to this case by the Franklin County Child Services uh, group, and uh, this is according to the Columbus Dispatch reporting. So he admitted to police that he raped this 10-year-old girl twice. The girl told police about it, and then they got a DNA swab after which Fuentes confessed. So she, because she could not have an abortion here in Ohio, she had one June 30th in Indianapolis. And the story originally came to us through reporting by the Indianapolis Star. But then people started questioning the veracity of, of, the, uh, of the story. They were trying to, you know, find out who the source was. It was a doctor who performed the abortion there in Indiana. So finally, the story was verified, but not before a whole bunch of people jumped on the bandwagon and, be, and were very skeptical of the story after President Joe Biden mentioned it in a recent speech. So Dave Yost actually was quoted on Fox News. He defended his original statement in that he did not believe, he didn't hear a whisper about this case, and he figured he would have heard about it. But then um, he uh, did a 180 and sent out a statement that said, quote, my heart aches for the pain suffered by this young child. And he was grateful to the Columbus Police Department in getting a confession and getting a rapist off the street. So they totally turned it around and, you know, didn't even, he didn't even talk about the victim in his little statement. He just said, well, you know, we got a rapist off the street, but that wasn't what he was saying just a couple days before. And well, he he ended up doubling down further, standing by everything he had said earlier and including what he had said earlier was every day that goes by, this becomes more of a fiction. And look, here's the thing this became as soon as Biden mentioned it, it, it created the Republican divide. So I started getting emails from people saying this stinks, this stinks. And what they were what they're implication was is 10 year olds don't get pregnant. And so we had started to do a story because it actually happens with a regularity that is alarming. The county prosecutor in Cuyahoga County is often prosecuting men for raping children that young who ultimately get pregnant. And then the pregnancy is ended. Dave Yost, instead of calling around to say, hey, is there a case? He he just grandstanded and said, yeah, well, I'm not hearing anything. I'm not getting a sniff of it. What did he do to find out before the guy who's supposed to represent the victims of the state, the highest ranking law enforcement officer, went out and said, 
this little girl's crime didn't happen. What will that girl be thinking for the rest of her life when the top law enforcement official of Ohio negated what she had gone through? You know, Jim Jordan did the same thing. He called it a lie. But, you know, Jim Jordan's kind of stupid. So he, he's always going to take the cheap way because he's not a thoughtful guy. Yost is a smart guy, so it makes what he did even Yeah, worse. yeah, and I guess he had talked to the USA Today Ohio Bureau in which he said that the story was more likely than not a fabrication, so that's when he doubled down. But once Fuentes got arrested, everybody changed their tune really quickly. And Jim Jordan had a tweet up. He had uh, tweeted a Washington Examiner story in which Yost was quoted that he said there was no evidence of a rape, and he said, another lie. Anyone surprised? Well, that tweet disappeared yesterday. I know, but think about this. You've got a 10-year-old that's raped twice. The guy's admitted to it twice and impregnated. 10 years old. Think about what life is like when you're 10. You know, you're in third, fourth, fifth grade. You're, you're running around with your friends. I mean, you are not in any way close to being an adult. And she's got this traumatizing thing where she goes to Indiana. The doctor, God bless the doctor. The doctor comes out and says, this happened. This is the result of Ohio's heartbeat bill. So everybody starts attacking the doctor because she won't go public with details. When HIPAA, the mm. federal law, prevents her from talking about the mm. details. This was a shameful, shameful, shameful attack on the truth by the people. Yeah. Look, a congressman and the attorney general basically said, hey, 10 year old girl, you're fictional. Your crime didn't happen. And, can- and I think it's partly because of the abortion, right? That is obviously a super political issue. But implying that another lie, what Jim Jordan said, basically is like the mainstream media is not being fair here. They're totally against this development and therefore nothing they they report on is right i mean it's an attack against the media as well as the truth as well as you know uh, the whole uh, controversy about abortion how do you look yourself in the mirror in the morning after you do that i I mean and to to put out a, a release like lisa said well we got a rapist off the street Dave Yost didn't do anything to, to get a rapist off the street. He didn't do anything to even investigate whether it was real. He just got his moment in the sun going, ha, 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 my, my lab hasn't been contacted. I don't have a whiff of this. It's just it's shameful. What you said about a 10-year-old and the age they are, and my kids are 9 and 11, right? So I know plenty of 10-year-olds, and they are kids. They, they're not teenagers. They have no idea. It, it is just absolutely mortifying and so disgusting and just it it makes your blood boil right which is why there was so much fear to tamp this down because no one wants to think about the implications of a 10 year old getting pregnant because it's just so absurd and heartbreaking and i think that's why there was so much energy put into saying this doesn't happen so we don't have to think about it well and They could have not said anything. The right right thing to do would be to wait. Look, our editorial board talked about this on Monday, what we would say. And our consensus was we need to wait and see what the facts are. Meanwhile, we're doing a separate story of how prevalent this actually is apart from this case. But we had the sagacity to say, wait, we don't know all the facts yet. Let's see. But Jim Jordan and Dave Yost rushed on to the national media to harumph and, God, it's just awful. Courtney. Yeah, no, I mean, I just want to zero in on kind of what you brought up earlier, Chris. This is the top prosecutor in the state dismissing 
the one of the youngest, most vulnerable, horrifically violated victims, like a little baby 10 year old. Like how how can he not lose credibility? He's supposed to be the top law enforcement officer in the state. It It's shameful. He's dismissing the most vulnerable victims. But I think also when we talk about them casting doubt on, on the veracity of this story, like they kind of have to. This is this is what the, 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 the party of pro-life wanted. They wanted that 10 year old to be forced into pregnancy and to try and hide that 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 gross kind of truth by just lying and saying this isn't a thing and doesn't happen. I guess it kind of makes sense that that's their move. They, they supported this. We're going to go talk to victim advocates and rape crisis counselors about how victims of these crimes feel when law enforcement negates their experience. It's just the psychological damage. You've already been raped. You know, you've already been put into a horrible situation. And then to have the people who are supposed to represent you, a congressman and an attorney general negate it. What does that mean? So look for more stories in the future. This was an ugly day for Ohio. It's today in Ohio. The new Franklin County Jail officially opened. Well, I guess it didn't officially open Wednesday. We got a big tour of it Wednesday. I was a day off in our discussion on Tuesday. Are there any lessons in the experience there for Cuyahoga County, which has stumbled so badly in its jail planning, Courtney? It, it, it sure seems like it, right? So this, this Franklin County facility is going to replace a jail built in the 1960s that was in downtown Columbus. It's going to have about 1,300 beds for inmates. And and it's, it's located kind of on the fringe of town along the outer belt. So it's about 15 minutes from like downtown in the courthouse that way. But, but when we talk about modern jailing and and reflecting modern practices in our jails it seems like this franklin county fits the bill for everything i've learned about modern jailing so as andrew tobias learned yesterday when he went on a tour of this facility it's it's two stories it's not a big skyscraper jail like Cuyahoga county's current one it allows for direct supervision of inmates which you know the new school of thought there is that's much safer than locking people up and not having a guard actively in the room with them you know, the new school of thought is that guards keeping an eye on inmates prevents things better like fights and and suicides and contraband use and that kind of a thing. You know, there's lots of sunlight windows in one part of the jail. There's an opportunity to open a window and let in fresh air. And it seems so simple to us, but these are little quality of life things that go into, you know, the thought is reducing tension, not having people feel completely like they're locked up like animals and treating them with a little bit of dignity, fresh air, sunlight, those kinds of things. And, um, you know, there's also some very important structural things that are baked into this jail, Andrew reported. One of them are is dedicated mental health wings. You know, here in Cuyahoga County, our mental health capacity in the jail, even though it's considered one of the biggest mental health facilities in the state just because of how many people are in there with, with those kinds of issues, paltry, small, dark areas for our mental health treatment here in Cuyahoga. This really dedicates space to that. It also allows for basically medical care and other programming such as, you know, I, I would assume religious intervention or classes, different things like that within the living area itself. So, so inmates have freer reign and freer access 
to, to maybe get checked out by a nurse or something. And then, and then one thing I also think is important here is there's a central booking area and Cuyahoga County has been eyeing this for a while. Nothing's come to fruition yet. This would be part of plans for a new built jail here in Cuyahoga County, which it, it, it's a better way to process people in, hook them up with the resources they need. They have access to phones to try and free access to phones so they can call as many people as they want to get bail and, and to get that out of there and, and reduce the population, which is generally needed in big urban jails. There's an amnesty box where they can dump drugs in before they go in, no questions asked. So that maybe reduces the chance of illegal drugs getting into the facility. So it's got all these fun, neat, cutting edge things. And, and in Cuyahoga County, this is what we're looking at if we do build a new facility. But jail planners argue a lot of these things, much of this quality of life and modern approach to corrections would not be available if we renovate the current skyscraper jail because of right. its function and right. its so, shape. So, so we're missing one key element of this. They didn't build it on a site that was so toxic the state wouldn't build a prison on it years before, which is what Cuyahoga County wants to do. They took it way out of town yeah. to a, a very safe place, figuring they will transport people into the downtown courthouse for their hearings, which is something that works really well with big jails in places like Arizona and Orlando, Florida. For some reason, the the county is in an all crazy rush to cement this into a site that's not appropriate. Instead of going outside of town, building a much wider spread jail and having a transportation system and not putting it on a toxic site that will result in civil lawsuits from now until the end of time. They did everything yeah, right. The, the Franklin ahead, jail is on a former dairy farm. Right, so, right. so it's, it's, it's manure. Definitely, definitely green space. And they did say that with the pandemic, they learned to do so much more with video conferencing. And so they don't believe they'll have to bring inmates down for every little hearing that they have to have, that they can do a lot with technology, which is something to think about. Yeah. It, it, look, there's a lot to think about, but but the difference is they wanted to get it done there. I, I, the, the statements that were made in Andrew's story by the public officials were so heartening because everything they did was about doing it right. And we still have Cuyahoga County Council working in concealment, trying to get something done fast apparently to just get the contract let before the next county executive might come in and not go with their favored contractors or something. I, this, I like that you say do it fast because like Franklin and Cuyahoga started thinking about it at the same time. Well, so so it sounds like Franklin County broke ground in 2017. I'm not sure when, they, when their planning process kicked off. Here in Cuyahoga, our planning process has dragged on for, we're in year four now of planning here. In, in Franklin County, I think it's important to point out, they started building in 2017 and they're looking for a September opening. It took five years to build that facility. So I, I do think part of the rush on the county side, part of it at least is it's going to take a while to get built. We got to get moving. We've been planning for four years. It's If it does take the same length as Franklin to build, we're not looking until 2027 potentially to have a jail either. Well, we are halfway through this podcast and we've talked about two topics. Moving on, you're listening to Today in Ohio. The aftermath of the Akron police killing of Jayland Walker has been marked by incidents of violence and anxiety, which created more anxiety as his funeral approached Wednesday. Laura, how did things go as friends and family said goodbye? 
So about 300 people filled the Akron Civic Theater in downtown Akron, and the focus was on Jalen, about him as a person. They laughed about his jokes. They remembered his quiet personality. They praised his loyalty, his honesty. There were a parade of people that moved slowly to speak. They each told a story about him, and a cousin of his delivered the eulogy at the funeral. He said, I I never thought people across the country would be calling my cousin's name. We never thought this would happen in Akron, Ohio, and I never thought it would be my family. So obviously, it's a heavy burden. Uh, They're grieving, but they tried to talk about Jalen's personality, how he used to wrestle and was a really hard worker on the wrestling team. And his cousin said he'd been having a really tough time as of late. And as we know, his girlfriend had been killed in a car accident just a month before. So he had been going through a tough period, but they tried to remember the the smiling, kind Jalen that they all loved. Everybody is trying to understand this because everything you hear about him is he was this wonderful guy, but the death of his girlfriend does seem like it, it flicked the switch. It's just... It's such a sad thing. Even that Akron mayor and police are talking about what a strong family life he had and how how special this kid was. And it's just one of those. We're getting lots of notes from people that are trying to to come up with explanations and suggesting that we should be doing stories. And, you know, we don't have any basis for any of this. We're waiting for the investigation. But clearly from the what people said about him yesterday, this is such a a hard case to fathom. I do believe we're going to find out some more this week still with the autopsy. Uh, But you're right. I think, you know, people keep talking about the 60 shots and why it happened. And it's just a hard one to wrap your head around because he didn't have problems with the law. He was a DoorDash delivery driver. You know, he's 25 years old, no, no criminal record. Why did he, why, why did the chase start? Why did he fire a gun? Why did he get out of the car with a ski mask on? I mean, these aren't things that have simple explanations that we know yet. Yeah, it's a, uh, we'll wait and see what the investigation shows. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many times have we heard this before? Is there good news for those hoping for redevelopment of the long vacant Warner and Swayze building, one of the most prominent buildings in Cleveland? It's near Carnegie Avenue and East 55th Street. And what about some other brownfields near there, Lisa? Yeah, so there are four tracts of land in that immediate area, 55th and Carnegie, that are going to get uh, some money from the state brownfield remediation program. So the Warner Swayze building, it's an early 20th century building that used to be an old factory for planes, ships, tanks, and guns. They're getting $1.4 million from the program. Um, the building is city-owned, but a Philadelphia-based developer, Penrose, will con- Convert the Warner Swayze building into 140 affordable apartments and commercial space, and this money will help uh, provide gap financing for this project, which will be $60 million overall. There are three other recipients of Brownfield grants in that immediate area, just east of the Warner Swayze building along Carnegie. The old accurate plating factory is getting $2.1 million. They hope to uh, turn that into an electric motorcycle plant. Uh, that's the land company that wants to do that after they get 
sign up from the EPA after it's cleaned up. There is a site almost contiguous at 2175 Ashland Road. They're getting 287000 to assess contamination at the former site of the East Cleveland Railroad Powerhouse and the Cleveland Ice Machine Company. And also 2295 East 55th, that's the former Goodwill building. They want to turn that into a poultry processing plant by early 2024. The Warner Swayze building is the one that everybody focuses on because if you drive down Carnegie or 55th, which pretty much everybody does at some point, it's huge and it's looming and it's been graffiti covered and run down for decades now. Uh, to turn that into that corner into something would be a major step forward for Midtown. You know, we keep talking about the Midtown Renaissance, but as long as that building sits vacant and rotting, Renaissance doesn't seem like you you can really say it's robust. Well, I'm shocked that they're going to renovate it. I honestly thought that they were going to knock it down, but no, they want to turn it into apartment, which is laudable, you know, but yeah, that's going to be quite a job, a $60 million project. Yeah, they put it on the historic register not that long ago. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the most frequent reason that OSHA cites workplaces for breaking the rules on employee safety? Courtney, this is kind of a lark, but but it's an interesting lark. Yeah, reporter Zachary Smith kind of dove in and, and showed us what the workplace problems were in 2021, according to OSHA, and, and thought it was kind of fun to get a view of this. So the, the worst violation is workplaces not providing adequate fall protection. Um, you know, employees falling down on the job potentially causing injuries and those kinds of things. OSHA generally in 2021 cited about 5,300 different places with that kind of a violation. But there's a lot of other common ones here, Zach listed. There's companies failing to provide proper respiratory protection, issues with ladders and scaffolding at, at businesses. And then, you know, there's some minor stuff like not having the proper little symbols that denote whether a material is hazardous or poisonous and and not having the proper like eye and face protection and those kinds of things. So falling down is the biggest problem. You would think that it would be something else, but it's the almost the old Chevy Chase way. You're just falling down is the big problem for OSHA. Yeah, by far. You know, some of the 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 lower ones on the list only racked up 1,000 or two, but this is about 5,000 violations for falling. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Here's one you don't see every day. A Cleveland police officer is sued for using excessive force for a shooting of his partner. Laura, how did that happen? This is a crazy, crazy case uh, that we're writing about that Jennifer Kil- Kilnap filed this lawsuit accusing the city and police officials of lying about the circumstances surrounding the shooting, wrongfully charging the man the police arrested and failing to properly train new officers. Her partner was a then rookie named Bailey Gannon. He never faced any discipline for this July 20th, 2020 shooting. So this was in federal court in Cleveland and Adam Faris reported it. So basically they were at a boarding house on East 81st street. A woman called police reporting a man was acting strange and fired a bullet into the floor. The man was inside the bathroom with the door closed. So police originally said the shooting was an ambush that the police showed up. The man fired at officer Kilnap As soon as they opened the door, he was charged with attempted murder, but the lawsuit says homicide investigators began to suspect that the same day that Gannon, her partner might've shot 
shot her. And that's where the crime scene analysis basically finds out that they walked up to the bathroom door, that Gannon never announced his presence as a police officer, never asked the man to come out of the room. And then he opened the door. There was a gun in the hand. He took cover behind a wall, ran down the stairs, screaming while firing the gun over his (laughs) head. And that's what hit his partner. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing to me. He he sees a guy with a gun. Here's a police officer. And, and he runs Doesn't away. Doesn't announce himself as a police officer. Right, runs away, firing discriminately over his head. They charge this guy with doing it. The whole thing is ridiculous. And the one officer who gets disciplined in this is the one who got shot. Yes, for failing to turn on her body cam. Because if maybe she had her body cam on, she could prove all of this happened more easily. But by the way, Gannon's father is a Cleveland police supervisor. And the lawsuit says he lied to investigators. He was never disciplined. And that his three months later, his supervisor gave him high marks for performance and said the shooting was a, quote, minor setback. Obviously, this is all according to the lawsuit. But this, you just got to wonder, like, who are we hiring? And what is the training like? Yeah, it's a wacky story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What more do we know about Craig Enciardi, the Rock Hall curator and director of acquisitions who was accused of plotting to sell purloined Eagles lyrics and notes? Lisa, we said we would be doing more on this when we talked about it yesterday, and Troy Smith delivered almost as soon as we published the podcast. Craig Enciardi is like instrumental in the establishment and the curating of the Rock Hall of Fame. He's been with the Rock Hall. He's been a curator and director of acquisition since 1995 when it opened. So this is a huge fall from grace. Um, He also was credited with creating and curating some of the uh, high profile exhibits in the Rock Hall. Um, He also curated venues in New York and Japan, which are both now closed. Those were going to be like satellite Rock Halls, but they neither them lasted very long. And before joining the Rock Hall, NCRD worked for Sotheby's Auction House. He, for about three years, assembled rock memorabilia auctions for the auction house. Interesting that the papers that were stolen were nearly sold to Sotheby's. Uh, NCRD was charged in Manhattan court on Tuesday. The the manuscript in question, we found out, was 100 pages of lyrics and notes from uh, Don Henley, uh, or Glenn Fry, either or, Um, And these were from the 1970s. It's believed they were stolen by a writer who was doing the book on the Eagles. This writer is not named in the indictment. So these papers were sold to Glenn Horowitz, one of the other three indicted. And then he sold the papers to Inciardi and Edward Kaczynski. So Inciardi has been suspended from his job at the New York-based Rock Hall Foundation. Apparently, Don Henley, one of the Eagles founders, heard about this, and he filed a police report after telling and after telling Inciardi that, hey, you've got stolen papers, apparently, allegedly, they still tried to sell these papers to an auction house, even though they know, knew they were stolen. Yeah, you know, we were in the newsroom yesterday and I was talking to Troy Smith, who covers the Rock Hall, and that's what he marveled at. It's Don Henley calls you and says, hey, those are mine and they were stolen. And you don't take care of that and you keep trying to sell what you now know are stolen notes. That's automatically a crime. You're in possession of stolen goods. You would think that before you would continue down the road of selling them, you would do a little bit more work to to do it. I bet that they were in deep on what they had bought them for and were just trying to get their money back. 
but pretty, pretty bad. And Troy also detailed all of the different exhibits he had been involved in because he's still an employee of the Rock Hall, even though he's he's based out of New York now. He's on the Rock Hall payroll uh, and he's been a major factor. So that a shocking story to come out of our the one feature of Cleveland that is unique and no one else in the world has it. It's our special museum. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How long might Ohioans go without having a leader for the state school board? Laura? Um, They might be lasting until next year because the president of the school board basically says, hey, we're going to get nine new members um, in November with appointments and elections, and we shouldn't rush this, and we should wait until they're in place to pick. And that didn't go over well with all of the board members. They had an hours-long debate over this. They accused each other of violating parliamentary procedures, and an attorney had to settle it, whether they were proper or out of line. But nothing is getting done anytime soon. They're not meeting till September, and that's when they could discuss whether to hire a search form to begin looking for a permanent superintendent, which, which, I mean, that's a long process, too. So I don't see this happening anytime soon. There is a certain sense to this, though, because the president's right. They're going to be a bunch of members. So you could start this process, get it almost done, and then have a new majority say, no, 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 let's start over. I'm not sure there's a better path. Well, except that you're, you know, you're leaving this department without a leader. It's been without a leader since last September when Paolo DiMaria retired. Although they did intend to vote on their second choice uh, yesterday, or sorry, this week. They plan to. Because remember, obviously, their first choice was Steve Dakin. He was the former vice president of the board, resigned amid ethics questions because he had overseen the process, quit his job on the board, and then applied for the job within days. And that is ethically dubious and was probably could have been charged with something we don't know but so they were intending to vote on their second choice this is a guy named larry hook a finalist who had previously warned about the teaching of systematic systemic racism and sexism in written materials he had submitted to the board with his application it was unclear if he had enough votes but too bad he got a different job and so he's not interested anymore Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Come on back Friday. We'll be talking about the week of news. I'm Chris Quinn. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, everybody who listens.